Hey folks, welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing on in our new series with James Jordan on biblical worldview and the world of the Bible. Here, he's going to be talking about the world of the patriarchs, moving from Eden into the world of Noah and Abraham. This is a really fascinating talk, and we think you all will really enjoy it. As always, do check out those show notes. In particular, check out the link to our YouTube channel and subscribe over there. We are in the midst of an ongoing series walking through the book of Revelation, and we're also regularly putting out psalm chant videos. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you are helped and sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the world of the patriarchs. The world of the patriarchs. The world, plural, of the patriarchs. In this lecture, we are going to look, first of all, at a refinement of the world of the Garden of Eden. Hopefully, after the preceding lecture, you have a fairly good grasp of the fundamental world model. Uh, But we need to make a refinement on it now, add a few details that we passed over in the previous tape. Then we will look briefly at the ark as a world model, the ark of Noah. And then we will look at the new heavens and earth that came into being after the flood and the destruction of the first heavens and earth. Remember that we have seen that the expression heavens and earth has both a cosmic and a political significance. In some passages of scripture, um, the heavens refer to physical locations and such elements as sun, moon, and stars uh, are actual physical cosmic objects. And similarly, in those passages, the earth refers to the literal ground that we walk on as it was created by God and ordered by him. Other passages of scripture, however, we've seen use these expressions politically so that the heavens uh, refer to the preeminent powers uh, signified by the sun, moon, and stars in the heavenly host, uh, which uh, preeminent political powers may be nations, or as we'll see, they may be the saints. And then the earth would refer to uh, the common people in such a polity, the rulers and the ruled. And we will explore that somewhat as well in this lecture as we move through biblical history, tracing the worldview uh, as it develops. First of all, let's refine the Edenic model that we discussed last time. We said that man was positioned on the high mountain, uh, and we said that that mountain was Eden, the mountain of God, and man could stand on the top of that mountain and look into heaven. And we connected that to Mount Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount and many other passages in which the heavenly pattern is revealed to man. Jesus stood on the mount and spoke the heavenly pattern to the ears of men so that they might go out and do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And similarly, Moses and David saw the pattern in heaven and then erected God's temples on earth and so forth and so on. When we look at the Bible, however, we find that Mount Zion in the Old Testament was not the highest of the mountains. Figuratively, it may have been, but it wasn't. In fact, all the the mountains right around Jerusalem were all higher. So that Jerusalem uh, and Mount Zion were, were actually surrounded by higher mountains. 
And we read about this in Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, should say are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. The imagery there is that important as Mount Zion is, it's important also that it be surrounded by even higher mountains to protect and nourish it. And these higher mountains around Zion will point us back to something in Genesis chapter 2. In fact, it should point us back to the land of Eden. When we look back at Genesis chapter 2, we find that the Garden of Eden was not the highest point in the land of Eden. It says in chapter 2 verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. In verse 10 it says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So the river took its rise in the land of Eden, which was high ground, and flowed to the garden of Eden, which must have been somewhat lower than the rest of the land of Eden, or at least wherever the river began. There must have been a higher place in the land of Eden. And then from there it cascaded down and formed the four streams that went out to the four corners of the earth. In fact, if you look at the map uh, in lecture number one, I've got it drawn that way, a river arising in the land of Eden, flowing together and going through the Garden of Eden, and then breaking out into four rivers that went to the four corners of the earth, or in that map went down toward the south. Now, that's the information we wanted to get before us here, that there's a distinction between the Garden of Eden and the land of Eden. And there is a distinction between the symbolic height of God's holy mountain and its literal height in terms of the imagery of the Bible. There are other places that speak of Zion as uh, beautiful in this elevation. For instance, Psalm 48, without comparing it to any place else, says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. Well, Zion is actually not in the far north. That is a figure that reminds us of Eden, which apparently was in the far north. And apparently Mount Zion is not the highest of the mountains. But here again, in a figure, it's said to be beautiful or, uh, you know, uh, superlative in elevation. So while it's not really in the far north and it's not really the highest mountain, the eye of faith discerns that even in its lowly estate, Mount Zion is the greatest of all mountains, and it is the most far north in the sense of being like the Garden of Eden. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2 says that someday Mount Zion will be the greatest of the mountains and everyone will see it. In the last days, he says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So there's a symbolic height and in terms of symbolism Zion is the highest. But then there's another symbolic figure in which the mountains around Zion protect it and nourish it just as the Lord surrounds his people and protects and nourishes them. Now, it's not possible to put those two symbolic pictures together, and we have to understand that symbolism is flexible and be open to the various avenues that God has of communicating his imagery and truth to us. 
By distinguishing between the land of Eden and the garden of Eden, we can distinguish between three environments on the earth. We have the earthly sanctuary that corresponds to the heavenly sanctuary of heaven itself, the earthly sanctuary being the garden of Eden. That is the place of worship. It's the place where the tree of life and the tree of knowledge are found. It's the place where God meets man and man meets God. And it's the place that Adam and Eve were kicked out of because of their sin. That's the earthly sanctuary. The second environment, the land of Eden, we can call home. Home is the place where you rest. It's the place where you have your family. Uh, the land of Eden was already somewhat developed when Adam and Eve were placed there. And uh, it would be a home for them. The garden would be their, their church, their sanctuary. And the land of Eden would be their home. And then the third environment is the world. The world is where they would expand into. It's the place where dominion would be exercised. So they would live at home, worship in the sanctuary, and then labor to bring the world to its fruition by following the rivers out and extending the Edenic pattern. And they could plant various sanctuaries along the way as they went, as each new land, the land of Havilah. Uh, for instance, let's assume that Adam's descendants had gone and made the land of Havilah into a home. Well, then they would have planted a garden in Havilah, and that garden would have been the Garden of Havilah, just as there was a Garden of Eden, and it would have been a new sanctuary, an earthly sanctuary, an image of heaven on the earth. Now, it's important for us to notice the order of creation. Genesis 1 tells us that God made the world, and then he began to develop the world. The world was made first. Then the home was made because we find that there was the land of Eden, and then the earthly sanctuary was made third and last. Now this might seem like a strange thing to us in that we've said the influences flow from heaven to the earth, and the influences flow from the sanctuary out into the world as the four rivers go out to the ends of the earth. That's all very true, but it's also true that even when those rivers are blocked off, there is always a heavenly sanctuary. And the heavenly sanctuary exists before the earthly sanctuary does. That is, heaven was created, and heaven is the sanctuary even when there is no sanctuary on earth. To make it very simple, even if we didn't have any church buildings to go to, we can still worship God. And while the sanctuary in the Old Testament was more than just a church building, it was at least that. And even if we don't have church buildings, we can worship God. After Christianity has been in the society for a while, then you get church buildings. And that is a pattern that we'll see followed in the Bible. First of all, God made the world itself, then he made a home for man, and then he made an earthly sanctuary where he would meet with man. And all along, the heavenly sanctuary was there as a pattern. Heaven was the pattern for the world. Heaven is the pattern in a somewhat different way for the home. And heaven is a pattern in yet a third different way for the earthly sanctuary. But the heavenly sanctuary is always there, positioned above the world. Now we can see that in diagrams 7 and 8. Diagram 7 gives us the three spheres of the world. And diagram 8 shows the heavenly sanctuary as a pattern for each of the three earthly environments three earthly environments each picturing in a somewhat different way the heavenly pattern 
When man sins, the first thing he loses is the sanctuary. God no longer will meet with him directly in God's own palace chamber. Man is exiled. And that's what happens to Adam. Adam is cast from the presence of God and is refused admittance to the sanctuary any longer. Cherubim will guard the sanctuary. And throughout the entire Old Covenant period, nobody was ever allowed back into the sanctuary except the high priest and only once a year. And that was only during certain temporary times in Old Covenant history. Once Jesus Christ comes, however, and enters into the heavenly sanctuary, then we, in union with him, are all entitled to enter in along with him to the heavenly sanctuary, and we can do so at any time. Heaven is no longer locked up, and the cherubim no longer hold the keys of the kingdom. Rather, they are given to the church. But Adam, when he sinned, was cast out of the garden of Eden. He wasn't cast out of the land of Eden, and apparently he still lived there. We read that Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to the Lord, and certainly, this, uh, by analogy to later scriptures, this would mean they brought it to the doorway of the Garden of Eden, where the cherubim were. And uh, later on, in the Mosaic Tabernacle, people would bring their sacrifices to the doorway that had cherubim embroidered on it, and that was the doorway to God's sanctuary. That's probably where Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices. But you remember that Cain killed Abel. And what happened to Cain then? It says that he left the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of wandering east of Eden. So Cain lost not only the sanctuary, but also the home. And God intensified the curse against him so that he would be driven as a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, a man without a home. Adam still had a home on the earth, even though he lost the sanctuary. But now Cain has lost both the sanctuary and the home, and he is only a wanderer in the world. That condition continued for 1,656 years until the wickedness of man was such that God determined to remove men from the world as well. So by the time the flood came, God decided to exile man, not only from the sanctuary, and not only from the home, but also from the world. And now we come to the flood. The second thing we want to talk about then is the ark, because during the flood, while the world was being reworked and was returned to a condition where the waters covered it, just like in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God set up a separate world for men to live in. And this is the first actual architectural uh, man-built house, a world model, that we have in the Bible, the ark itself. Because while the ark was designed to float on the water and be a ship in that sense, it's not called a ship uh, or described as a ship. It's called an ark and it's described as a house. Its proportions are that of a large house. It has a window, it has a door, and it has three stories, just like a house. And uh, this is the first of the houses that God tells people to build. Just like the tabernacle and the temple, God revealed the plan to Noah. God told him exactly how it was supposed to be built. So just as Moses went up on the mountain and saw the pattern and was told exactly how to build the tabernacle and then he came down and built it, so Noah is figuratively at least on top of the mountain and he is given the heavenly pattern and he comes down and builds the ark, the house, for himself. And during the flood year, that's where the kingdom of God was.
The world itself was covered with water and was being reworked by the angels into a new place for man. And the kingdom was in the ark, which was like a house. Now, God told Noah explicitly the dimensions of it. It was to be 30 cubits high, 50 deep, and 500, uh, excuse me, 100 cubits long. And there is a diagram of that, diagram number 9. And you'll notice that there were three stories. And what's interesting is that these three stories correspond to the three-decker universe that we've seen before. And in fact, although Adam was not told to put animals in the middle story and birds on the top story and creeping things on the bottom story, yet every time God spoke to him and every time the Bible speaks about the animals that went into the ark, it uses these three categories. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 20, Birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the ground after its kind. Uh, chapter 7, verse 14. They and every beast after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind. Well, okay, you've got four categories there, the beasts of the field and then the domestic animals. But basically the three zones are there. Okay. Similarly, you've got uh, the three basic categories uh, with the uh, division between cattle and beasts in verse 21. But looking back at 8.17, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that's with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 19, Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on all the earth went out by their families from the ark. These are the three categories in the world. I might add, the verses that speak of the uh, beasts and the cattle have reference to the fact that of clean animals, uh, they took seven pairs, whereas of unclean animals, they only took two pairs. That's in chapter 7, verse 2. You shall take with you of every clean animal seven pair, a male and a female, and of animals that are not clean, that is beasts of the field, just a male and a female. So, When we allow for the distinction between clean and unclean animals, we have the three zones of the world, the heavens above, the earth beneath, and the waters under the earth. Uh, It's possible that the creeping things are in this lower category because they swarm in the ground and burrow down into the ground and thus are under the earth in that sense. The creeping things are rodents, lizards, and insects. Possibly, though, uh, is simply that the lower story of the ark would would be underwater, uh, and thus would, as the ark was the only piece of dry ground on the earth, the surrounded by water, uh, that part of it that was underwater, submerged in water, would represent what was under the earth. At any rate, we can see that the ark was the only land there was during the flood year. Just as the land, the place that God made for man, was situated in the midst of the waters and rose out of the waters, so the ark, which was the only Eretz, the only ordered cosmos for man to live in, was situated in the midst of the waters. There is an obvious visual correspondence between the ark as the only land, only dry land in the world, and the original dry land that emerged from the waters. And this was the ordered cosmos for man. And it was a cosmos ordered by God and a model for the new world under man. Commenting on the flood, 
Second Peter chapter 3 states that the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And then he says the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire. Um, usually it's assumed that the present heavens and earth began right after the flood. I would be arguing in the course of these lectures that that may not be the case at all, that we actually have a succession of heavens and earth in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and probably the heavens and earth, the present heavens and earth that Peter refers to uh, began at the time of the exile uh, when there was a, a new structuring of the world. We'll get to that. But the first heavens and earth was destroyed by the flood, and that made possible a new heavens and earth, a new world after the flood. And so we come now third to Noah. Noah comes out of the ark and brings with him God's pattern for the world. A pattern that was given in Genesis 1, a pattern that was found in the design of the ark itself as a cosmic model. And now Noah, as the agent of heavenization, the new Adam, will bring this to the world. The ark stops on Mount Ararat in the far north, probably the same general location as the Garden of Eden, and the new world begins. Now when God made the world to start with, the first thing he did was make the wider world, and then he made a home, and then he built a sanctuary. And the first thing that we read after the flood, in terms of the recreation of the world, is not the building of a sanctuary, nor actually a planting of an Eden, but rather the structuring of the world. And that's in Genesis chapter 10, where we have the 70 nations of the world uh, as they descended from Noah. And there we have the new world as it set out. When we get to Abraham, we will have the development of the home, a land, a land of Eden. And when we get to Moses, and it will take us all the way to Moses uh, and to the end of Joshua to see the full establishment of a sanctuary in that land. And so the rebuilding of the world is going to be a much longer process than the original six days that the first world was built. Well, we are in a new heavens and a new earth. And, and as I am setting this out, it makes the most sense to me to see a new heavens and a new earth existing from the time of Noah until the call of Abraham, and then a new heavens and earth established with Abraham and continuing down to Moses, and then yet another uh, new heavens and earth established then. And we'll see how, why I'm willing to use this language uh, even though it's not found in the book of Genesis itself. Remember that heavens and earth not only have to do with the cosmic structuring of things, but also with the political, uh, religious structuring of the world. Now, what is this second heavens and earth that exists after the flood? Well, it has the 70 nations of the world. It has no particular home for God's people, and it has no sanctuary. In other words, it's like the first part of diagram 8. The heavenly sanctuary functions directly on the world itself. And during this period, we have Noah and the family of Shem wandering the earth uh, with no particular home for God's people, but ministering here and there. And uh, the archetypal figure for this is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem 
even after Abraham was called and given the special calling of God and told that he would establish the land and create a new Eden, a new home, we find that Melchizedek is there as a Gentile priest king. And these Gentile priest kings, um, as they ruled in various places in the earth, either ruling as righteous men under God or as wicked men in apostasy, that was the polity, the heavens and earth of the period between Noah and Abraham. Now, how did that polity come to pass, and what is the big change? If we look at diagram number 10, we can see that before the flood, the heavens were the mighty men of old, men of renown, who ruled the world before the flood. They are referred to in uh, chapter 6, verse 6. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. They were mighty men of old, men of renown. In other words, they were the powers. They were the sun, moon, and stars. They were the heavens. And those which were on the earth, those which were ruled over, those who were ruled over by the mighty men, the Nephilim, were the righteous. They were the earth. They were below. And there was no home for, for the righteous, no establishment of any sort. Uh, the sons of God had fallen away and married the daughters of men, and the line of Seth had become corrupted, and therefore there was nothing left, even of the land of Eden. Now, after the flood, we see that there is an attempt to reestablish this one world order, one world pagan order uh, based on power. And the, the inheritor of the principle of the Nephilim, of the mighty men, is Nimrod. Nimrod, who founded, according to Genesis 10, Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And Genesis 10, verse 10 says that he founded both Babel uh, and Erech and Akkad and Calne in the land of Shinar. And then he went forth and founded uh, Nineveh in Assyria. So the two great cities of the Old Testament that oppressed the people of God later on, both Babylon and Nineveh, are founded by this man Nimrod. And in chapter 11, we see the story of Babel and why Nimrod left off building Babylon and went on down to Assyria to start Nineveh. And it's the story of the Tower of Babel, the story with which you're doubtless familiar. But what's going on in the story of the Tower of Babel is an attempt to rebuild the old heavens and earth from before the flood. What Nimrod wanted was a one-world power state with himself as the captain, as a Nephilim, ruling over uh, the people of God. And when God saw that they were attempting to do this and build their tower and build their counterfeit world, he said, Behold, the people are united. They have the same principles. And what they begin to do now, nothing will be withheld from them. And so God scattered their speech and defeated Nimrod and said that there would be no one-world pagan order ever again. Rather, uh, the world would be governed in a different way. There would be many governors in many places, but no united structure and form. And the heavens would be these priest kings, and then the earth would be the nations of the world that they ruled over. And there were godly priest kings, and there were ungodly priest kings, but we move into an age of city-states. Uh, that will exist and endure for quite some time. That is the heavens and the earth that came into existence with Noah. And it endured for a while, but it didn't last terribly long because with a few exceptions, the world began to lapse into apostasy. And so God took stock and introduced a new heavens and a new earth 
by calling Abraham out of Ur and establishing Abraham in the land and saying that he would make the land of Canaan into a new Eden for his people. When we come to the Abrahamic heavens and earth, we want to notice um, particularly some of the language that God used with regard to Abraham. He tells Abraham in chapter 13, verse 16, I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Now, that means that Abraham's people will be a new earth. And he also tells them that not only will, will righteous people fill the world, the seed of Abraham, but he also says that righteous people will rule the world. He says in chapter 15, verse 5, God took Abraham outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said, Thus will your descendants be. So Abraham's people will be the heavens and the earth. Uh, the world, the entire world will be theirs. They will in some sense be the rulers of the world. And uh, they will ultimately in some sense be the populators of the world. Now in this new heavens and earth uh, that's established at the time of Abraham, the distinctive thing that's new is circumcision and the setting apart of a priestly people. Up until this time, uh, certain descendants of Shem and perhaps others were priest kings of various city-states. And while these men will continue to operate in Gentile lands, now there is something new added, and that is a separate race of people who are called to be a nation of priests to occupy the heavens for God, the earthly heavens, and minister on God's behalf to the world. And throughout the Abrahamic patriarchal period, Abraham's ministry to the world and that of Isaac and Jacob is signified by certain Edenic features. Uh, we'll call attention particularly to altars, trees, and springs of water. Now, I've spent a good deal of time on this in another tape series called The Life of Abraham that we've done, similar to this tape series, and if you're interested in more details about the Abrahamic heavens and earth, I can refer you to that. But for now, let's briefly look uh, at altars, trees, and springs of water. Abraham was seen setting up altars in various places. In chapter 12, it says in verse 7, Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there and uh, to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. we got a mountain theme. And pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai and built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then uh, chapter 13, verse 4, he returns to the place of the altar that had been there formerly and called on the name of the Lord. So we see Abraham going around setting up altars, establishing worship in key places in the land. If we were to study this out, we would see that these places that Abraham puts altars are little tokens of conquest. He puts them at Bethel, at Hebron, and at Shechem. And later on, when Joshua conquers the land, these are the three key places that he will hit and they will become important places in history later on. So, worship of God is established as the first stage of conquest of the land. Now, an altar, since we're looking at worldview here, uh, rather than evangelism in this particular series, 
An altar is a mound of stone or dirt. It's a miniature pillar or pyramid. It's a little holy mountain. It's a ladder to heaven. And so it's a place where heaven and earth join. If you want to approach God, you approach Him at an altar. And that's where you meet God. It's where heaven and earth joins. It's like the top of the mountain, like the top of the pyramid. Uh, And so it's a place where God can be worshipped. It has to be built of earth because it represents the earth. And in the Bible, altars always have four corners and represent the four corners of the earth. If we were to make a full study of this, particularly in the book of Revelation, we would find that the angels who stand at the four corners of the earth are just like the four corners of the altar, and that when fire is cast on the four cast on the earth in Revelation, it's just like the fire that's cast on the altar. So the altar is a representation of the world, and particularly of the high place in the world where man can meet with God. And when Abraham goes around building altars here and there, we can see him uh, restoring the world, and we have a new heavens and a new earth. Now, when Moses comes along, there will only be one altar, and that will be another change. We'll have a new heaven and a new earth with Moses. But during the time of Abraham, we will have numerous altars in numerous places built by Abraham as places to worship God. And that will be a characteristic of the Abrahamic heavens and earth structure. Now, these are not an established sanctuary, you see. When we get to Moses, we get a final and established sanctuary, a central place. We don't have that yet. Uh, With Abraham, we have the world and the home, but we don't yet have the earthly sanctuary. And so there are altars in various places that form various uh, temporary sanctuaries. The next feature of the Abrahamic period that we can look at briefly are trees. Uh, Trees feature prominently in the story of Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 6, Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Mori. Chapter 13, verse 18, Abraham moved his tent and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron and built an altar to the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 13, fugitive came and told Abraham the Eberite, he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, and so forth. Genesis 18, verse 4, Abraham says to the three uh, men who visit him, wash your feet and rest under the tree. And so they ate under the tree. Well, living living under trees reminds us of the Garden of Eden, or the land of Eden itself. And it's a provision for man, a shade from the sun, a beautiful thing. Trees are beautiful, we're told. Eve saw every tree that it was, the tree that it was good for food and a delight for the eyes. And these trees uh, are reminders of the garden. And so we have a new world with altars and trees. One final thing to point out that reminds us of the original Edenic world since we don't have a, a symbolic sanctuary, are the springs of water. And they, these are highlighted in the story of Isaac, which occurs during the same period, during the Abrahamic heavens and earth. If we look at uh, Isaac's life in Genesis 26, verse 18, Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. And they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too, so he named it Sitna. And he moved away from there and dug another well. 
And they didn't quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth and said, At last the Lord has made room for us. Well, if we were to study more, we would find more wells of water and springs of water throughout this patriarchal period. The reason I'm calling attention to these things is that when we get to Moses, we will find the tabernacle provides us a symbolic uh, world. The tabernacle is like the ark. It's a house that is a cosmic house. And it has in it a laver of water and a tree and showbread and various features, one of each positioned in a certain way as symbolic of the world. But before this happens, we have the Abrahamic period where these symbols exist out under the open sky. Instead of, instead of having these symbols of the world stuck inside of a representative cosmos called the tabernacle with a, a blue curtain over the top representing the sky, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they lived in a, an, an open-air tabernacle with the blue sky above as the ceiling and numerous altars and numerous springs of water and numerous trees scattered around. This was the configuration of the heavens and the earth at that time. And all of these things were reminders of God's graciousness to them, just as they were pictures of God's graciousness to Adam in the first place. What was new about the Abrahamic world was circumcision, the distinction between Jew and Gentile, and the ministry of the Jews to the Gentiles. Abraham the Hebrew and his descendants were supposed to dig up wells of water to provide water for the heathen. They were supposed to build altars to lead the heathen in worship. They were supposed to plant trees in order to provide shade and blessings and food for the heathen. And in the case of Joseph, Joseph will be one who feeds bread to the entire world. All of these are features that are found symbolized later on in the Mosaic Tabernacle, but during the patriarchal heavens and earth, they exist under the open sky. So let's review very briefly what we've seen in terms of the worlds of the patriarchs. We saw that before the flood, uh, man was cast out of the Garden of Eden, out of the earthly sanctuary, and then cast out of his home, and finally the human race was cast out of the world as a whole, and the world was remade. During the flood, there was a cosmos for man which was enclosed in the ark, which was like a house, like the tabernacle later on, a cosmic house. After the flood, we have a new heavens and a new earth, a whole series of them. And the first one is the Noachic heavens and earth. It's a period of time in which there are various priest kings uh, ruling in the heavenly, so to speak, ruling over the earth. Some of them are righteous men like Melchizedek or Jethro later on. Many of them are unrighteous men and the world doesn't seem to be working very well. Heaven is impressing itself on the world but there is no special home. And so we have yet a new heavens and a new earth come into existence with Abraham. In Abraham's time God begins to provide a home for a special group of people. He sets a distinction between Jew and Gentile and calls the Jews to live in this Garden of Eden, not in the Garden of Eden, excuse me, in this new land of Eden, which is the land of Canaan. And he tells them that they have a ministry to the world as a whole, that they are to be springs of water flowing out to the world, that they are to be trees of food and with leaves of healing, that they are to be altars and places where people can meet God. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.